everybody. I'm Kim C, and this is my Stephen King podcast where I take King's underrated works and put them on the conveyor belt of literary analysis. And when I'm not picking apart, dissecting, and discussing the findings in my mad laboratory, I like to connect with other King folk to compare my data. And I get a lot of help with that today from my constant reader interview guest, podcaster, literary critic, and King fan, Matt Freeman from Kingslingers. Before we go any further, I just remembered I actually need to address him as Dr. Freeman, because Matt has a PhD from Texas A&M, pretty sure I got that right, the university that is, in engineering, and that's where he met Scott Daly. They were college buddies! Isn't that the best? Those two kept in touch, and the rest is King history. Matt has been steadily making his way across King's vast and prolific amount of stories, He's made a really good dent with all seven Dark Tower novels, The Stand, The Long Walk, Hearts in Atlantis, and they're currently in the middle of Matt's very first time with Pennywise and the kids from Derry. This was such an amazing conversation, friends. Thanks to Matt, I have a whole new appreciation for The Long Walk, which is a huge feat unto itself. We go here, we go there, we go everywhere, and it is such a rich hour of conversation. I can't wait for you to hear it. Let us now dive into our second interview of this double interview Blue Moon Glory with the second owner of Doof Media and the co-host of Kingslingers, Dr. Matt Freeman. Ladies and gentlemen, may I present today's guest of honor. This is Dr. Matt Freeman from Kingslingers. Welcome, Dr. Freeman, to the show. Oh, hello. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, I'm freaking out. I'm excited. It's always the roller coaster drop when I get to meet you and introduce you and start the show. Tell me about Kingslingers, Dr. Freeman. Well, Kingslingers is a podcast that was started by Scott and I. In early 2020, the idea was that my old-time friend and podcast mate Scott realized that I had read hardly any Stephen King whatsoever. Funnily enough, the only book I had happened to read was Needful Things, which most people don't regard as one of his best, but I actually think it's quite a fun book. But in any case, Scott had the idea that we would do a Dark Tower podcast where he would, he would lead me through the Dark Tower like a dark figure in the distance ahead who I would be following (laughs) chapter by chapter, book by book. And that's how we started out. We went through the Dark Tower novels. It took us over a year. I don't remember exactly how long. We finished those. Then we moved on to Dark Tower adjacent novels. And now we're doing just books that Scott likes, to be honest, because we're having a fun ride. There's no need to get off the ride yet. There's plenty of books left. So that's where we are right now with Kingslingers is uh, I'm the ignorant doofus who tries to make predictions about what's going to happen in the books and Scott titters behind his hand or or tries to hide his shock as I come up with a correct deduction as the case may be. And uh, and, and that's pretty much the dynamic. Uh, we have a lot of fun and we hope that our listeners do too. I love it. I'm so excited to have you here and it's so 
nice talking with someone who's pretty new to the King Party. I haven't been here very long myself, maybe about 10 years, so I have a lot of catching up to do for sure. I'm only on the fourth Dark Tower novel. I just finished Wizard and Glass for the first time, so I'm still recovering from it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the, the Dark Tower is a fascinating animal, and I know I'm not, I'm obviously, I'm not going to talk about it too much because I know you haven't finished, but it is, it is a very unique literary experience. Perfectly said. So we know that Needful Things was your very first King title. Was that something that was put into your hands? Did someone recommend it? Did your parents read it? How old were you? I think I was probably 16 or so, and it was just that my mom bought it or had it in the house or handed it to me, and I don't even think she had read it. It was very random, very, very random. And that was honestly pretty much it other than the the normal amount of Stephen King adaptations that an American youth consumes in the course of growing up. So since you began your Dark Tower journey and your Stephen King journey with Scott, how many titles would you say you have under your belt at this current time? Plus or minus 18 novels and 23 short stories uh, is where we are currently. And I, I say plus or minus because it's it depends on how you count Hearts in Atlantis. Is that, is that, is that several <laughs> short stories? Is that one novel that's broken up into pieces? Are you familiar with Hearts in Atlantis? I am. Okay. And that's one of my favorite of his works, by the way. So that's why I'm belaboring the point. But yeah, that's, that's roughly the count at this point. Yep. I have an episode on Hearts in Atlantis and I was like, a uh, short story? No, no, one novella, a couple of slices of, I had a really hard time. Yeah. Uh, that one's a very unique, unique one. I totally agree. Out of the titles that you've journeyed through thus far, have you encountered one, and this could have been from Scott's additional commentary where he kind of lets you know this story is pretty much hated by a lot of people, and you're like, how? I loved it, and vice versa. Did you hate something or really dislike something, and you found out it was a fan favorite? I am not a big fan of hating things personally um and and i so me and scott's thing this dynamic that we've developed between ourselves is basically just that it's more fun to talk about what worked what we liked maybe sometimes talk about how something could have been different and might have been better if it was different but we very rarely just go all in on just this was trash i hated it it was garbage even if there's something that didn't work for me I think it's more interesting personally to be like, well, why didn't this work for me? Why, did, why didn't it work for me specifically? And so that being said, there's, there's nothing of King's that I have hated. You know, maybe some of his sillier short stories, I'll just be like, ah, this is just kind of a, I'm trying to think of an example right now and failing because I actually think they're almost all fun. But some of them are just, they're kind of a silly little throwaway short story. They're, they're just kind of, it, it probably wouldn't have been published if it wasn't Stephen King, right? And, and you're like, ah, it's, it's fine, you know? But that's not hating it. That's just dismissing it, I guess. (laughs) I wholeheartedly appreciate objectivity. (laughs) It's so it's so good to have. It's hard to have sometimes, but it's good. Yeah, not not to say that sometimes I I don't hate things. It's just I've never hated anything of King's. Yeah, I I'll have to meditate on that one because I feel the same. But I'm like, have I? I don't I don't remember. But I'd like to say that I've done a good job of balancing subjective objective yeah yeah it's it's very difficult to do that i mean it's it's something i aspire to do it i don't know that i always succeed so when i say 
that's what that's how me and Scott like to behave. That's how we like to behave. That's not how we always behave. Sure. But, um, I think it leads to more useful and productive conversations. And I think it's more fun to listen to, especially like if somebody really hates something and you liked it and you have to listen to them rag on it, that's not fun. That's a really unfun listening experience. And I don't want to do that to people. That's, that's one, that's one reason, you know, just a very practical reason not to just rag on somebody's thing that they like. Right. I so appreciate that you guys take that into consideration because, yeah, I mean, we're not in a position to yuck anyone's yum, you know, mm -hmm. like it's just heart smashing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Someone spends a lot of time invested into a story and then, yeah, I agree. I'm glad you guys do that. So I wanted to look at characters for a second. We've got some memorable and incredibly iconic characters throughout the King canon and Based on what you've digested thus far, do you have a character who you would like to see get another spotlight novel or its own spotlight novel? And this could be very similar to what Danny Torrance received in Dr. Sleep. Is there anybody who you would give a whole novel to, prequel, sequel, extra spotlight? You got me thinking about Lowman and Yellow Coats, Hearts in Atlantis in general. And I, I guess it would be. I think it would be fun to see King's take on what did Bobby Garfield get up to in those intervening years, or perhaps what happens after the um, you know the the time skip and then ending of that story. And I say that for a few reasons, but I guess first and foremost, much of my favorite King stuff is actually mundane, non-supernatural stories about people struggling, and and this is I think something I've heard you talk about before is having this misconception that King is this pulp writer and then realizing like, no, he's this literary writer who's very interested in human internality, who then I think cracked the code and realized that he can sell a lot more books if he puts an evil clown in every once in a while. But what I love about his writing is, is the characters and the psychology and, and, and all of that. So that book and Bobby Garfield as a character is just so nuanced. And there's so much to say about growing up and I do wonder what King's interpretation of the life of Bobby Garfield as he is an adult would look like. Oh, that just melted my heart. Low Men in Yellow Coats. It's a top five novella for me. Mm -hmm. And I was just thinking about Bobby Garfield and how much he moves me. So beautiful choice. I support that a million percent. I love it. I'm so glad. I'm so glad to hear that. And it's one of those things where you know, when people ask about King recommendations, actually, that's one that I recommend pretty, pretty close to the front. You know, it's hard because it's like, well, obviously you want to go for the, the big hits that everybody loves, but I'm just like, yeah, but that's not what I love. I mean, it's not that I don't love the classics, the shining, what have you, but I'm like, yeah, but like, that's not, that's not a fair shake of what he is doing. I almost wish I had started out with Lowman and Yellow Coats because then I would have that sense of who Stephen King is walking into the journey instead of getting that sense way down the line or gaining it gradually, I should say. I consider myself lucky because Full Dark No Stars was my first King title, which is a very intense and literary novella collection. Mm -hmm. And that was a very defining title for me that showed me King is a master storyteller rather than a pulp writer. I haven't read those, but those will go right on my list because of your description of them as such. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. 
as soon as you're done, Matt, <laughs> we we have to talk because it is. I had just finished grad school, picked up that collection, and my world was changed. So beautiful, very rich, very intense, unforgettable. Okay, full on revenge and vengeance, and like <laughs> the dark side of the human heart. It is wonderful. Well, I'm I'm still you know, serving my tenure at Kingslingers for a few more months, but, but eventually I'll be able to read whatever I want, just not for a while. <laughs> I got you. In your Stephen King journey thus far, have you had the chance to reread any King titles or has it just been sort of plowing ahead with show stuff? Yeah. The only one that I've reread has been the drawing of the three. That's, that's actually it because we got a lot of reading to do you know, parenthetically, in addition to Kingslingers, we also have a monthly book club that's just some other random book. So got quite a lot on my plate. Uh, but yeah, I did manage to fit in the drawing of three. I think because that one's just the most straightforwardly fun of the books, full stop, perhaps. It's just a blast. It's just a ride, you know? It really is. Having finished Gunslinger and just my brain scrambled egg, like what ha- what is going on? And then you go to drawing of the three and it's this bombastic is the word I will always use for Mm -hmm. it. It's so 80s testosterone, action, explosive, totally Uh fun, totally crazy. All of these new people love it. Yeah, yeah. There's so many parts toward the beginning of that book where I'll, I'll just be smiling. Like, it's just pure fun, you know? It's one of his many talents. He has many talents as a writer. One of them is understanding how do I just give these people a fun time and then delivering on that? It is so good. I think a couple people, I think it was King. This is a King quote. He calls himself the burger and fries. He delivers fiction in a burger and fries format, which I kind of love. That is delightful. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Right on. Sometimes the way I think about it is it's like he's sitting next to you to say sitting next to you at a bar. And then I realized that's probably not an association that I should be making with him, but sitting next to you and, and telling you a story. And he's that kind of storyteller where it's, there's no feeling of, of arm's length sort of pretension. It's just, he's unspooling this yarn and he's keeping your attention hooked the whole time. And he knows exactly how well he's got you. And he knows when to lay out a little bit of tension or when to bring it in just a consummate storyteller in that way. And in addition, of course, to all the other things he's good at, like psychology and uh, everything else, basically. So I do want to ask about king villains you've encountered so far. Do you have any favorites? So to go with what I said a minute ago, in terms of really liking the non-supernatural side of things, I enjoy his mundane monsters like... We're in the middle of it right now. So Tom Rogan is on my mind and I forget what happens where in the dark tower. Okay. There's, there's dark tower villains. I can't mention right now, but they're on the mundane side, or at least they're on the not too supernatural side. And, and that, that tends to be what I like because God, like you, you want to flinch away from that kind of evil in the real world. And King is so good at portraying it on the page in a way where you're like, yep, you want to write off people who are truly evil as just being sort of beyond the pale. You couldn't possibly relate to them. You couldn't possibly understand them or their thought processes. And then he writes these characters and you're like, okay, unfortunately, I have to say that I understand this character. And that is unpleasant and kind of incredible and kind of what I go to fiction for, actually. 
what are your current thoughts on Henry Bowers? I don't know how far you're in it, but what are your Henry Bowers sentiments? Uh, he's he's a great example too. I mean, he is exactly the the mundane evil. I think one interesting thing about his character is we get to see him as a kid and as an adult. Actually, just where we are, I've barely seen him as an adult at all, but we've mainly seen him as a kid. And I think that's that's kind of the fun thing that it is doing in general is it's looking at childhood psychology and examining how that propagates through to adulthood psychology and the through line of that really invites a lot of introspection as you you know think back onto your own childhood and you're like, oh, wow, I really am still dominated by those same things that happened back then. So can you really say that 11-year-old kid is evil? I don't know. It doesn't quite feel right to say that, but the, you know, there's this through line from the, from the 11-year-old kid to the adult who obviously is evil, or maybe one could dispute that. I don't know. It's very interesting. It's very thought-provoking. I love that kind of thing. I love the questions about the nature of evil that any King book invites. An amazing topic to mm -hmm. pick apart and plug into for sure, especially with kid stuff. Mm -hmm. It's like you weren't set up for success and Bowers undergoes tremendous amount of abuse and neglect. It's like, well, then what? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he's not only that, but then he's preyed upon by this supernatural evil. Right. And, and I don't, you know, so I haven't even seen the shape of what that's going to take throughout the whole book, but that's always a fascinating thing in so many of King's works is that there is this dynamic between the supernatural evil and the mundane evil. There's a kind of interplay between the two that never quite absolves the mundane evil of its evil, but it does contextualize it in a way that I find really interesting and thought-provoking and uh, fun to talk about. This question is about Stephen King endings. I don't know how or when or why, but it is amongst constant readers and Stephen King fans that the man can't end books. And I think that sentiment is because they don't want the story to end and it just kind of drops off sometimes. But the majority of constant readers I interview talk about the journey and they're really not in it for the ending. They're in it for the journey. And so I hear both. I hear 50-50, the, the endings sort of gut punch you sometimes and other people are like, who cares? But have you ever read thus far, the ending was so dissatisfying that it kind of ruined the journey as a whole for you? Or do you just kind of have a different approach to endings? Uh, you know, okay, I'll, I'll pick one since you asked. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but generally, I'll just mention like one of my other favorite authors is Neil Stevenson, who notoriously has terrible endings. And I just don't care. I'm just, I'm, I'm just here for the ride. <laughs> Um, and so I, I generally am there for the ride, but I will say the short story, Er, have you read this one? Yes, I have. So it's basically an ad for Amazon Kindle. And I think that what happened was King was writing an okay story. And then he remembered that this is supposed to be an ad for Amazon Kindle. And then he swerved violently toward the end. And overall that story, it, again, I said, I don't, I don't hate any of his books and that's true, but this is the one where it's just like, uh, this is. This is barely a story at all and especially the way it ends you're just like i kind of feel like if if you caught him in the right mood he would be like yeah that one i don't know about that one so yeah er is uh, not not my favorite ending of the stephen king novels because it turns in a way where it's like and then everything was fine the end which is not a natural stephen king ending and not the right ending for that story i would agree with that i was definitely like what <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah. yeah 
My next question is very open-ended. So I'm really looking forward to your thoughts because it's just huge. The entire question is your thoughts on the Dark Tower. And seeing as though it is a huge part of your Stephen King journey, tell me. It's impossible, right, to to encompass it. So I'm going to take the Robert Piercig approach and just pick one tiny thing about it to talk about, which is the fact that it is a love letter to all of these other things that Stephen King has loved, these other pieces of fiction that he has loved that he wants to introduce you to in his own way. So The Wastelands is this love letter to The Wastelands. There's Lord of the Flies in a lot of his stuff. There's Lord of the Rings throughout much of his stuff, particularly The Dark Tower. And our Kingslingers listeners are likely laughing now because I try to find the Lord of the Rings in everything because I love Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And and I love that about Stephen King that he takes these things that he loves. It's not like he tries to pass. It's not like he tries to launder the fact that he likes Lord of the Rings. He's like, yeah, I love, I love Lord of the Rings. It's awesome. And here's my homage to it. It's going to be in your face and it's going to be obvious. There's no shame at all. It's just, you know, the other one is, is Watership Down, which was another novel that I hadn't even read. We, we actually read Watership Down because he references it so much in The Stand. And then I was like, oh my God, the Watership Down has become one of my favorite novels now, like not exaggerating. And, and you realize how much of his storytelling sensibility is reminiscent of this tale of these bunnies going on this journey together. There's the dark towers in there. It, it's all it's all this web of, of intertextuality and in the case of the dark tower, like explicit metatextuality, but not in a, not like in a pretentious way that that would make you think he's like, oh, he's just he's so um, enamored of his cleverness. It's like, no, he's he just loves these things and he wants to share them with you. He's having fun and he wants you to have fun. He wants you to, to see what's great about this stuff. And he's inviting you in. It's this inviting stance toward literature and he's using you know his his pulp sci-fi western fantasy story to to bring you in and i think that's very very fun and just i like it for its own sake and i also love that he has tricked me into reading all of these great things like like watership down by virtue of of connecting them to his stories oh well said I'm a huge rabbit fan in general, so Watership Down crushes me, heart and soul. I agree, and I'm so glad that you brought up the topic of how he references so many literary works. And one of the reasons I love King so much is I feel so close to him as an English teacher. And I know that when he's writing these stories, I'm like, you are teaching English right now. You are teaching school. You are, and you never stopped. This was like an early thing you did when you were Struggle Bus McGee, and now you are bajillionaire, but you are still taking us to school. You are still putting us in that classroom. Other Lord of the Flies is in there, Lord of the Rings. He does a lot of gothic stuff with Rebecca and certain texts. It's amazing. I'm sure there's stuff I'm missing, by the way. Like if, if you... If you're like, uh, I, I can't believe he didn't mention this thing. It's like, oh, then then please tell me because it's entirely possible that I've just like missed a thing that he's trying to to, to transmit to me. But Rebecca, okay, I'll write that down. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, he was playing around with gothic stuff in the late 90s, I think. And so he took Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca, and that's what Bag of Bones, that's sort of like Mm. the tie-in piece. I don't know if it's concretely there, but when I read The Long Walk, that is The Heart of Darkness Mm. by Joseph Conrad, I think. Sure. We also have With the Mist, that's totally George Orwell, War of the Worlds. Sure. I'm blanking on last names. I'm getting... I always like, I'm like, is that the right person? But anyway, there's all these classic texts that one can infer. And so I just love it so much because we're in school. We're in yeah. school always. Absolutely. Yeah. Now that you've got my, yeah. So like there's a lot of Lovecraft mm-hmm. and a lot of his cosmic horror, v- very explicit references to Lovecraft and, and quite a lot of Poe. Oh, yeah. In The Shining as one example. So yeah. And again, it's just, it's so much fun. It's just, he's, he's sharing it with you. It's this spirit of love and inclusivity. And I just, yeah, it just makes me smile whenever it happens. So, so, you know, you asked me to talk about the dark tower. It's like, well, that's, that's the one angle where I was most surprised I'll say is, you know, I was expecting robots and cowboys. I wasn't expecting to be taken on this journey through modern literature like this. And I didn't expect to love it as much as I did. Oh, so beautiful. It makes my heart so happy. So I do want to nerd out with you really quick on some loader stuff because I started my Dark Tower journey 2021 and just went in cold with the gunslinger and it felt like it was really druggy and was just sort of trying to figure out each disjointed section. But one thing that I immediately grabbed onto was the Lord of the Rings-esque floating around. And so with the Crimson King and the Man in Black, I instantly compared them to Sauron and Saruman. And so that was how I latched on. I was like, Mm -hmm. okay, there's the man in black. He has to be Saruman. And then there's the Crimson King. He has to be Sauron. I don't know if I'm right at all, but (laughs) that was something that helped me navigate the gunslinger and just hold on for the ride. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I'm going to use my well-worn poker face to, to not tell you whether you're right, obviously, but, <laughs> but, 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 I mean, you can definitely see that he, he even has the iconography of the king being represented by a red eye, Yep. right? Which is like, it's like, okay, yeah, he's clearly meant to associate with Sauron and the vibe of Sauron, for lack of a better word, the, the idea that you never really see Sauron in Lord of the Rings. He's, he's this presence of profound evil and darkness so terrifying that like a glimpse of him through a magical stone you know brushing his his mental fingers across your mind will, will traumatize you right and that's that's the vibe he goes for with the crimson king for sure it's absolutely meant to to evoke sauron and, and i think that I think that's pretty clear and safe to say honestly <laughs> yeah and i did the podcast and i was just you know speaking into the void trying to like, do I have it, everyone? Like, is this is this <laughs> it? Is this it? Like, are we, is this some lo- loader stuff going on? So I'm happy to know that I wasn't completely far off with that. That makes mm-hmm. me very happy. But I just finished Wizard and Glass, so I know who the Man in Black is. Okay. I mean, I have a version. Sure. Which I loved. I'm still, I'm still an emotional wreck over Wizard and Glass. I thought it was incredible. And it just threw my heart into a wood chipper. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great, that's an amazing one. Right. I mean, it's, it's like, that's another cool thing about the dark tower is every book is so different. So you can have 
just the three that we just mentioned. So the, the gunslinger, very strange, very unique, actually turns a lot of people off due to how weird it is. And then followed by the drawing of the three, which is just a, a roller coaster ride, pure fun, totally unlike the gunslinger. And then of course, Wizarding Glass is, is this like high tragedy, which feels totally different from either of the other two. I'd say they're all sort of like this to some, I think he does it somewhat intentionally. Like I think he's kind of playing this game of, it's like the Beatles white album. I think actually it was Scott who said this, honestly, big music guy. Also, <laughs> I have to admit, it's just demonstrating, oh yeah, I, I can do this and I can do this and I can do this. And now we're going to have this kind of story. And also I can do this kind of story and you're going to have fun with all of them. The flexing is real. I think yeah. you, you're dead on. The flexing is very real. And I think we see this a lot with the short stories with some of the later ones or the more current ones in the last 20 years. I think either The Bizarre of Bad Dreams or Just After Sunset, where we get those author forwards or author mm -hmm. afterwards. And he says, I was spending a lot of time with Raymond Carver and I decided to just imitate his style. Or uh -huh. who is the guy who just passed away? He wrote No Country for Old Men. I'm drawing oh, a blank. Cormac McCarthy. There you go. He's like, I just wanted to see if I could have a crack at McCarthy's style, which blows me away because uh -huh. he just effortlessly does it. That's so funny. You want to hear an embarrassing thing that I, I said? <laughs> we, were, we were talking about Blood Meridian, uh, McCarthy's yep. novel. Yep. We were doing a YouTube book club. And I was confidently asserting that the gunslinger was inspired by Blood Meridian. And I was enumerating this list of similarities between the two, where incontrovertible evidence that the gunslinger <laughs> was inspired by Blood Meridian. Uh, and then like mid-sentence realized that Blood Meridian was released after the gunslinger, which invites a whole different question. Was Blood Meridian inspired by the gunslinger? I don't know that there's anyone who's ever really pursued this question. Dear readers, dear listeners. Ooh, I love a challenge. Oh my goodness. That's, yeah, that's huge. Chicken or the egg. Chicken or the egg. Or just, or, or honestly, two authors being inspired by similar primary materials from uh, the past, right? There you also, go. also, also possible. I'll admit, <laughs> tangential possibility. My next question is about film and television. Do you have any favorite film or TV adaptations that you've encountered thus far on your keen journey? We uh, sort of an auxiliary show we do as a as, as Patreon bonus content. To be honest, is that we go through the adaptations and we try to stick to the good ones because it's just not that much fun to talk about something that's bad. And that everyone knows is bad. But uh, my favorites from that series, I'll, I'll tell you my, my short list. Uh, Secret Window, like that one a lot. Shawshank Redemption. It's, it's like, of course, right? Of course, Shawshank. Uh, Misery is just an amazing movie. It's just an incredible movie. And I really, really like Dr. Sleep. I haven't read Dr. Sleep, but I, I thought, I think that was one of my first exposures to um, Flanagan. Flanagan. Nice. I was blown away and I was like, he, he gets King, he gets what King's trying to do better than for my money, any of these other filmmakers and executes on it. Actually, my, my takeaway from Dr. Sleep is I was like, this was a better Dr. Dark Tower adaptation than the Dark Tower movie. And what I mean when I say that is like, it, it felt, it felt more Dark Tower. It felt like something out of King's cosmos as a film. So I also liked uh, A Good Marriage. I liked Carrie, 1976. I like Gerald's Game quite a lot. I like Christine. There's like a ton of adaptations, right? 
a lot of them are really good too. So it's hard to, it's hard to pick one. If I had to pick, if I had to pick one, I'd probably say Shawshank, which is very boring of an answer, but it's, it's, it is just a perfect movie to be honest. Have you seen the green mile yet? That is our next on the docket. I have not seen it. Oh, okay. I'm thrilled for you. I'm just automatically thrilled for you. Okay. Yeah. I'm excited. That one, the credits are starting and I'm crying. It's just one of those, (laughs) like the intro music is just starting and I'm sobbing. Probably because the novel is so incredible for me and so moving. And then Frank Darabont just makes magic. So awesome. Awesome. I'm a fan. How, I don't know if you guys have talked about it on Kingslingers. Forgive me. I'm sure you have. What are the emotions surrounding Flanagan's adapting of the tower? Oh, very, very excited. Uh, I mean, I mean, excited and, and hopeful and like trying to not be too hopeful because sometimes these things don't work out. Right. Right. It's been a it's been a great period of time for adaptations just in general. I don't know what your feelings are on the, the Rings of Power show, but it's it's fun. I think I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan and I'm willing to set aside my like nerdy pedanticness and just be like, yay, Galadriel, yay. And, and I kind of, I try to have that attitude toward adaptations because the thing is, I spent much of my youth being mad that the adaptation wasn't right. <laughs> and in my old age, I'm just like, no, I'm just going to have fun with whatever they try to do. And, and Flanagan, he really gets it. So even if he changes things, I mean, he's going to have to change things, but whatever he changes, it's going to be something really incredible, assuming he gets to do it, obviously. So yeah, we're super thrilled about this. I did like Rings of Power. I was okay, okay with it. I really was. I haven't really nerded out too hard on the external Tolkien texts that mm-hmm. I think they were referencing. So I was just radical acceptance across the board. But <laughs> I was thrilled. I was thrilled to get a good look at, oh, wow, these are really, this is early elves. Whoa, I I enjoyed it. Me too. Me too. Enjoying things is more fun than being mad about how they're not perfect, right? Agree. With King stuff, I have to really discipline myself. I do, but I try and take the same approach that you and Scott do is just be objective and try and look at it in categories of strengths and weakness rather than like this was garbage. However, at the end, I do get a little feisty sometimes. I think. <laughs> Especially if you can see how it could have been better, that it can be hard to hold back. If you're like, ah, how did you, how did you miss it? You know? Right. I get really upset when they completely alter the story. And it's like, you didn't have to do that. You could have just omitted if it was too long, you could omit. That's fine. Uh-huh. But why did you rewrite and make it fake? And then yeah. you made it harder for yourself. And then now it's not successful at all. I get a little cranky with that. Absolutely. Understandable. <laughs> Blatant interpolations. Yes. Do you chat with non-King folk? I know you mentioned that Hearts in Atlantis is kind of the one you recommend. What are some of the other titles you might throw out to somebody who's never read King or someone who hits you with, I don't like scary stuff. I don't read him. So the other book that I've recommended has been The Long Walk. I really love that book. And I don't think it's just recency bias. We did, it, w- it was one of the more recent novels that we read. But that has so much going for it to me. It, it is this honest, heartbreaking look at what it is to be a young person and the struggles that a young person goes through 
And then there's layers and layers on top of that, where it's examining the social expectations we put on young people. And then the idea of you, you could specifically view it as a metaphor for war, but I think it's more than that. Like, I think it, that's the thing is it's like, yeah, you could write a whole thesis on just the idea that it's about the Vietnam war, but it's so much more than that. You can say so much more about it. Um, and it really resonated with me and just had me just thinking a lot about what it was like to be a kid of that age and uh, yeah, so that, that was one of my favorites and not a supernatural book. I think a good gateway for a certain kind of person who maybe is averse to or, or not thrilled about the fantastic, right? And it, you know, it depends on the person you're talking to, right? Because some people are, are much more open to that. I, I think a certain kind of person I would, would recommend The Shining first because it, you know, it is supernatural. It does the thing that King does so well, which is to take something very human and, and then elevates it using genre tropes and, and conceits to turn it into a fantastic story, which it's, it's a formula that he uses to great effect in, in many places. I think The Shining is, is a great example. Yeah, those, those are those are the ones I would shoot first. Of course, I do think it's somewhat personal, actually. Well, yeah, what, what do you tend to recommend, just out of curiosity? Sorry, I was thinking about your, I was thinking about the long walk. I was really yeah. meditating okay. on that. Yeah, yeah. I really recommend 112263. Okay. I haven't read that one yet. Cool. Okay. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited for you to read it. That one is a ton of fun. It's a longer one. So I actually really like your suggestion of the long walk, even though that one was a really hard one for me emotionally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It rung me out. It rung me out real good. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Like that. But that's, that's why I love it. I mean, you know, that's the thing about the drawing of the three is, is it's like, oh, it's fun. It's a roller coaster ride. I use these words and it's like, yeah, but sometimes you want something that just destroys you yep. and you're like staring after you finish it. No, it's it's amazing. It's an amazing book. It's an impressive text, especially when one realizes that he's 18 when he's mm-hmm. writing this and he's like in his college dorm, which blows my mind. I think it just... That would be one where I don't even want to think about rereading it, Matt. It was so hard for me to get through because I'm a pretty emotive person. I'm a very emotional person. And I have over the years come to like that and respect that and understand that about myself. And so I have to be very careful with my little marshmallow heart. (laughs) And it's so hard for me to put myself in a place that annihilated me emotionally. Although, you speak such truth. It is amazing. And it is a fantastic text to analyze and break apart and examine. It's strong. Yeah. I'll just riff on that for a second. I I read some things that I feel are sort of nihilistic and hopeless and, <laughs> and, and they make me feel awful. And I finish them and I'm like, I kind of just wish I hadn't read that. Yeah. And that is totally different from the kind of devastation that The Long Walk brings or, or that certain other books that I could name, but I guess I'll refrain for now, of his, where it's like, yeah, you ripped my heart out of my chest, but I'm glad that we did that. I'm glad we went through that journey together. I feel like I learned something. You earned these emotions from me fairly. And that is rare, actually. I mean, we read fair number of books and I think The Long Walk hit me much harder than almost any of the books that we read, King or or outside of King. I'm going to be thinking about that. 
I think you're on to something. And I don't hear it mentioned a lot in my constant reader interviews. I do talk about it with a few folks. It's an amazing book that really needs to be read and celebrated and analyzed. All the behind the scenes stuff, how young he was when he wrote it, this huge anti-Vietnam sentiment, this current running throughout, this mysterious dystopian society. Mm. We don't really get a lot of background info as to what is going on, why they're choosing the walk, all that stuff. Yeah. I, I haven't had, you know, I finished it. I did my podcast episode and I'm like, all right, I'm done. But I, I think it is kind of nice to revisit it and talk about how horrible it was because you said it beautifully. There is something very real there, especially if it's a shared experience. That's a good point. I, I do have the advantage that with all these books, I get to go through them with my book doula, Scott, <laughs> who is helping me process. I get to go through it slowly and process it as I go and discuss it. And I feel like that might help me metabolize these things a bit better than if I just rushed through the long walk in one go. I think that would have felt very different, honestly. So I understand. For sure. But yeah, I think I, I'm going to have it in my mind here for a while. Cool. There's some stuff I forgot about. So good choice there. Awesome. We're going to head into some fun ones. These are just fun little ditties that I like to ask King fans. This question is asking if you could get stuck in any Stephen King fictional setting, which one would you choose? This could be a sunny happy location now that there's a lot of those or one that you find the most rad in its horrifying elements yeah well so like the joke answer is like well the dairy in the 90s actually sounded pretty chill as long as you keep your head down but that that's like that's a boring answer i mean midworld as a setting is fun it's a fun concept because you never know what's around the corner it's radically bizarre like that's what he's going for is he's going for this feeling of you have no idea what's in that cave there's a cave could be mutants could be robots could be zombies could be ai mutant robot zombies literally i mean i would die or a fate worse than death in all likelihood but while you're experiencing it it would be quite remarkable right i, I gotta go with midworld so good do you have any contenders for a favorite Stephen King female that you've encountered thus far. Really enjoying um, Bev in, in, in It currently. She's a very, very specific character. She's a very, uh, you're not, you're not going to mistake her for any other female character, right? Which is, I guess, an accusation I've heard people make that I don't know that I agree with. But I think my actual answer is Susanna Dean, uh, who is a character who, you know, we get to spend a ton of time with. And she is... I think just like literally one of King's most multidimensional, multifaceted characters, bar none. I mean, uh, up there with Roland, honestly. And I think he's exploring a lot of different ideas that he's interested in through her. And so sh there's a lot of him in her. He puts a lot of thought into Susanna Dean. I don't want to elaborate on that too much because I know you're only like halfway through the story, but she is just a really remarkable character. And again, because the series is so long, we get to really soak into the complexity of that character. And, you know, he's so good at villains that I have to just shout out Annie Wilkes is a great villain. I haven't actually read that, but like so many of his villain characters are so strong that if you ask, like, what's your favorite female character? It's like, well, honestly, a lot of my favorite <laughs> characters of his are villains anyway. So I'm going to might have to go with some of the villainous uh, women. 
And Wendy Torrance is also a fun character while we're, you know, throwing out honorable mentions. Susanna Dean blows me away. Mm-hmm. I cannot even with that lady. I am just speechless with how many layers she has. For me, I notice a lot of dark goddess archetype stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm just amazed, amazed with how crazy, literally crazy, and <laughs> just what multiple yeah. people. She doesn't have legs. She, uh, yeah. She is someone who I could just do an entire dissertation on, Susanna Dean. That's a good way of putting it because I feel like even now I don't fully have my head around what we're doing with Susanna Dean, which is maybe a statement you could make about the whole of the Dark Tower where you're waiting for the moment when everything will click and become clear and Stephen King will will say, this is what I'm trying to do with all of this. This is what this character is about. And it never quite arrives and you're left thinking about it. And then you realize, oh, crap, he tricked me into approaching his story with a literary mindset. Damn it. (laughs) She's a perfect example of, I I think, his strengths of character writing, where it's absolutely perfect, compelling psychology, but then it's wrapped in this utterly bizarre package. (laughs) So many strange choices, right? Especially in, well, really everywhere, honestly. (laughs) a a A very interesting character. Yes. Now that you're reading Beverly, she is one of the most beloved Stephen King females. Every time I talk with constant readers, Beverly is usually in the conversation when it comes to Stephen King females. She's really almost holy. And I love examining why that is. And I don't know if it's just her position amongst the Losers Club and who she represents or the fact that she's so victimized by her father. Because, yeah. Beverly is so beloved. Why do you think that might be now that you're kind of in dairy making your way through? Well, I think everybody loves an underdog. And Bev is a kind of perfect underdog. She, not that it's a contest, but she seems to have it the worst of the losers. We really get to spend time understanding how bad she has it and empathizing with it and seeing this little girl go through these things. I have a daughter who's like exactly Bev's age in the flashback portions. And so it it boils my blood even more than it otherwise might have. But anyway, it's, it makes you so mad on her behalf. And that's just a great recipe for developing empathy and um, really making sure that the reader is in that character's corner. I think there's more to it than that, but I think that's a big part of why people side with her so much is is you're like, hey, you get to see her literally and figuratively beat up so much that you become defensive of her. I think that's perfect. Thank you. Nailed it. That makes so much sense. We only have two more, I think, two or three more. All right. We're winding down just a skosh. Okay. Do you have a favorite Stephen King duo? This could be a bromance general friendship, married couple, dating couple? Is there anybody in a duo or a group, if you like, that really just moves you? Yeah. So so one that really jumped out to me, and I don't even know if I can explain quite why, is Jack Sawyer and Henry Layden in, in Black House. I just love them. I just think that they're great. 
I love the, uh, you've, you've read this book, I assume. I haven't. I'm sorry, but I know what it's about, sort of. Okay. Okay. Then I don't, then I almost uh, regret saying that because that there might even be a, a spoiler in the fact that I said that at all. But uh, I'll just say very vaguely that you just fall in love with their rapport, their, it's ineffable. That's the thing. And, and when you say ineffable, what you really mean is you can't explain it, but I, I can't explain it. I just love the interactions between those two characters. It's just really, I found it touching and beautiful. Oh, good. I heard really good things about that one. And I'm in a Stephen King fantasy zone right now. I finished The Eyes of the Dragon. I just finished Fairy Tale. So I'm eager to kind of observe more of his fantasy output. And I've heard that one's a fun one. Yeah. Yeah. I like that one. The only thing I'm apprehensive about is I haven't yet read a Stephen King collaboration story. And so is it tricky with writing style? Like, do you know who is King and who is Straub? The funny thing is that me and Scott consistently would say, well, this is definitely King, but we don't know that, obviously. You do feel like you can tell the difference, but I heard at one point that whenever they were writing that, especially the Talisman together, King would try to mimic Straub's style and Straub would try to mimic King's style. So for all I know, we've been completely backwards at every turn and I have no way of ever knowing. I think the weirdest thing about those books is just that, you know, for, from a plot perspective, from a pacing perspective, mainly from a pacing perspective, honestly, it really does feel like a book that was passed back and forth between two people. I don't know if you've ever tried to write things in, in a sort of a pair fashion like that, but it definitely results in some pretty bizarre pacing because one person thinks you're going this way. The other person thinks you're going this way. And you just kind of jerk back and forth. And then you go over here in this little oxbow. And then you go over here in this cul-de-sac. And you get to the end eventually. And you have a fun time on the ride. I think this is a litmus test of like, if you're really a reader who enjoys the ride, genuinely, then mm. you'll have a lot of fun with these collaborations. Because they can try your patience if you're not in the mood for a meander. Mm. I happen to like a meander, so I enjoy these books. But uh, it's just objectively true that the pacing is a little weird. Copy that. <laughs> Good to know. That's so, so helpful because I get recommendations for Black House and Talisman all the time. But I'm like, oh, I'm a little bratty about it because I take my time with style and with his narrative choices. And I kind of analyze that a lot. And I'm like, I don't know who this person is. I don't know Straub. I've never read Straub. That's more work for me. Sure. I'll get there eventually. I'm just super bratty about it right now. That's totally valid because we would catch ourselves discussing that book and being like, and so I, what I think King is saying, well, what I, what I think, what, what I think is happening here, right? Cause it's, is you can't just impute it onto, you know, one person, constructing a story it's a story that's almost growing without any specific person's uh, guidance behind it so yeah it's it's weird it's weird to talk about i agree we have made it to i think my last question okay so this is amazing your top three or your top five what are your favorites and this could be novels or short stories it could be a top 10 your king of the castle whatever we want okay yeah, so no, nothing I say here is going to be surprising considering what I've said up to this point. <laughs> but, you know, Low Men in Yellow Coats and actually the whole of Hearts in Atlantis. I I don't know what the, you know, generally held fandom opinion is, but I just sort of think of it as a big book with parts, right? Um, and Low Men in Yellow Coats is one of the parts. It's the biggest part 
it's kind of the central and most definitive part but like that whole just Hearthstone Atlantis as a unit I think is brilliant I think he's doing so many interesting and unique things with it that's one book that's one that I want to revisit and and reread that's probably next on my like reread list so that's number I, I don't know I'm not going to rank these but these are my top three and whatever so, so then the long walk would be on this list as well for all the reasons that I described I just think it's amazing it affected me personally very deeply and you know, there's something about the fact that he wrote it so young that, I don't know, makes it gain an extra glow for me. It's like it feels more raw. And also because it's a Bachman book where Bachman is his representation of like the dark. Unfiltered. Id, unfiltered id of Stephen King. Yeah, where he's like, I'm not going to even try to leave you with a good feeling walking away from this. Yep. And I like that. And then I think The Drawing of the Three is, is probably my favorite Dark Tower book. Although may, maybe depending on what mood you catch me in, I might say Wizarding Glass. And in some moods, I might say The Dark Tower, the final book. Or, or, or I might even say, actually, The Gunslinger. Because I like things that are weird. And I like things that make me go, what are we doing? But not in a way that's like, this sucks. <laughs> but, but, but like, I'm compelled by the oddness of this. And that is the way that the gunslinger makes me feel. But yeah, that's a, that's a good it's a good ranking of favorites and maybe what I would want to revisit. And just off the top of my head, I would throw The Shining toward the top of any list of of King. That's a huge uh, just masterwork. It's almost so like good that you're just like, yeah, but everybody knows that. Everybody knows you should read The Shining. I want to talk about the ones that are like me specific, like like the long walk, where like that felt like it spoke to me personally, right? Yeah, those are my list. I don't know. Is that a weird list? Is that an idiosyncratic list? I don't talk to people much about <laughs> King because I'm trying to stay in my little bubble, right? Scott keeps me in a closet so I don't get contaminated. <laughs> that is a beautiful list. That Thank is you. a perfect list. And I'm thrilled that it is so personal because that's how it should be. It should be the stuff that moves you and stays with you. That's how it needs to be. No, that's a brilliant list. I love it. And I recently finished The Shining for the second time because I also have a book club I've been plugging in with this summer, just a little extra Stephen King book club. And of course, we're doing the heavy hitters because I like to do the underrated stuff in the shadows. That's where I like to hang out and spend time. But we're doing The Shining and I spent a lot of time with it and I, I was just super blown away. I forgot how masterful it is. It is. It's worth celebrating. It's worth lifting up to that high pedestal because you're like, oh my God, this is a story about doom from page one. This is the annihilation of a nuclear family on mm -hmm. page one throughout the entire time with all of this gothic terror mixed in. It's masterful. It's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, we're gonna and we're gonna drag you through some of the most uncomfortable domestic violence ever put to the page. Oh, so and bad. yeah, it's just very, it's very rough. It's funny. I guess one thing I'll say about The Shining is, you know, I, I'd seen the Kubrick adaptation. Obviously, I'd seen the miniseries adaptation. Felt like I had a pretty good handle of what I was walking into, and still managed to be caught off guard by so many different aspects of that book and how much it affected me emotionally, despite feeling like, no, I already know the story. I, I, everybody knows the story of The Shining. What, what surprises are there going to be? And it, it really it surprised me quite a, quite a bit, actually. I was really moved by Mark. I think it's Mark Torrance, 
who is uh, Jack's dad. Mm-hmm. And he's, I forgot that we do get a lot of very violent flashbacks into mm-hmm. this terrible man. And what's interesting is he's a hospital orderly, I think. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. he had like a profession in that. And so I know you haven't read Dr. Sleep yet, but let's just say that that profession pops up again and it's okay. really cool. And so there's a lot of nice mirroring and parallels there, but I was blown away by how much I enjoyed Wendy in the novel because in the Kubrick film, I I struggle. I struggle with her performance a lot. I've listened to a lot of folks who love it, who just think it's fantastic and praise it. And I, I get that. I'm a huge Shelley Duvall fan. I'm obsessed yeah. with the fairy tale theater. I love Shelley Duvall. For me, I don't know if it was the right role for her. And we've got the lore that it might have been a very difficult filming situation with Kubrick. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. There's a lot of speculation. The film is so iconic that I always have film Wendy in my head when I read the book. And so I really forced myself to not do that. And so there are some beautiful standout Wendy chapters in The Shining that I absolutely loved. And she became so much brighter for me. Sure. Well, that's the remarkable thing about The Shining to me is encapsulated by the chapter Night Thoughts, which is chapter six, which is on paper, the most boring chapter in the world because it's people lying in bed thinking. Yep. And you 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 imagine Stephen King's editor going, Stephen, this is just characters lying in bed thinking. This isn't it, but it's it's amazing, mm-hmm. and that's what makes it such a unique novel. Is it's all about the interiority of this family that are that are tearing apart from each other, painfully. All of them aware of it. All of them trying to make it not happen in their own way. All of them kind of in denial about it while being totally aware of it. And that's I think that's what makes Wendy, by the way, such a compelling character is you know she's strong but also she's totally in denial at the same time both things and and jack is totally in denial about everything all the time and even danny is totally in denial and and it's so realistic and it's like it's like painful because it resonates and you're like oh that remind you know even if you haven't been through something really even remotely similar to that situation you're like oh god yeah i totally i have this capacity to just not see things that I don't want to see. And it, it's hurt. So it's, I don't know, me personally, it's so painful to remember anything in that space of like times when you've been in denial about something being really bad and King that's, that's okay. Finishing thought for me is like, that's my favorite thing about King is he takes like the worst stuff. Like, like what's the worst time in your life? And you were so in denial about everything involved in it. And it was just a nightmare. And we're going to take all that misery and we're going to make a book about it and we're going to drag you through it and it's like it's a kind of courage and fearlessness in the face of this harsh material and he just does it over and over and that's that's his bread and butter is doing a thing that almost no one is able to do even once right like that's why he's remarkable like he's remarkable for so many reasons but that's the thing that he does that nobody else can do is show you that darkness and then you pick up the next book oh, here's another one with a totally different kind of darkness. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know how he does it, honestly. Oh, bravo. Well said. So beautifully said. I did find one little last question that I forgot okay. to ask. It's another Perfect. little baby fun one. I don't know if you have a signed King text and some people are really into them. Some people are huge collectors. If you don't, and you had the opportunity to get one, only one King text signed, 
personalized, what would that one be for you? I was given a gift of a copy of the stand signed, <gasps> but I, I, I would want a copy of the long walk. Nice. Very, very cool. It would be very fun if he would sign it, Richard Bachman. I don't know if he does that or not, though. That would be kind of fun. <laughs> I have no idea if he does. Is that a thing that he does? Do you know? It would be funny. Oh, great question. I don't know. I need to research that. Yeah. I'll keep that in mind. I'm thinking about the long walk now, Matt. It's great. <laughs> There's a character in the long walk who is my favorite, and I loved him so much. And it's it's not Garrity. It's the one who goes very silent and he goes inward. I think he might be one of the first ones to die. He might be the eviscerated kid. Okay. The one where the, he has a very epic evisceration scene, but he's the kid who goes inward and stops talking. Uh -huh. He absolutely goes into himself. And he's one of the first people that the boys start to kind of talk about and uh -huh. look behind at. And he like loses it and goes inward. I don't remember who that is. Do you remember? I don't remember. No, I really... I think my brain has only, I'm not great on proper nouns. So I've held on to Stebbins, McVeese, Garrity, like the three like, right. main guys, but I, I'm not, I'm not that great at this. So is he the guy who lasts longer than it seems humanly possible that he should last? Or is he the guy? I, it doesn't matter. I, I vaguely know. Okay. I think you're right. I think you're right. That's ringing a bell. He was my absolute favorite. He mm -hmm. was the one that I kept thinking about because mm -hmm. King takes him out of the spotlight, sort of. And then he actually has all the spotlight mm -hmm. because they're talking about him and they're curious about him and he should have been dead and he's not. I actually think that's him. I think that's the kid. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't remember, but he was my favorite and I think about him to this day. And so we've been mentioning Long Walk. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm thinking about him. <laughs> I think this conversation has actually made me realize how much I love the Long Walk because I didn't walking into this i wasn't like this is my excuse to talk about the long walk 15 times but it sure turned out that way and i and i stand by it i really think that's a great book you're not alone you're not alone in that there's a lot of constant readers that have really absorbed its brilliance and i'm really happy that we had this conversation because it kind of opened it up for me a little bit because i think i slammed the door after <laughs> I read it i slammed it and i was like i lived through that thank god no uh -huh. more all right but it's nice looking back on it and observing its power. And I really believe this is just my own personal hypothesis. Joseph Conrad's The Heart of Darkness about a British ivory ship going into the darkness of Africa, the jungles. It's basically the book that inspired Apocalypse Now. I feel that was a long walk parallel. Yeah, so I, I never made that connection explicitly, but now that you've mentioned that, I'm definitely going to have to think about that because tonally, 100%, you know, we, we go <laughs> yeah. right into the, the horror. I think the idea of of the major as a as a kind of iconic character like Kurtz, yep, is a fantastic. I'm just I'm you're hearing me go yeah. through this in real time. Totally, totally. Actually, I love this. <laughs> And I'm going to be cranking on this for a while. This is Good. great. Yeah. Yeah. Good. I'm happy. I am happy that we talked about this because I cracked the door open and it's a good thing. And I'm happy to realize that I'm proud I read that book. And I'm proud <laughs> that 
it was very early in my podcasting, so it's real bumpy. I'm just a little little baby in 2020 fiddling around by myself. It definitely could use an updated quality sound, but it's raw. My little heart was smashed into a schmear there, and I just loved those boys, and I didn't understand why they were getting murdered. Yeah, well, I want to go back and listen and, I don't know, weirdly, vicariously enjoy your suffering because that's, that's, that's how podcasts work yeah the schadenfreude is very uh-huh. real uh-huh. i felt it all and i remember i read it during 2020 where it was just full-on existential dread outside mm. absolutely quite literally the heart of darkness of 2020 and i i read it when everything was going down with george floyd uh-huh. it was like that same week matt uh-huh. if you can believe so yeah, there's a lot of trauma spooled in there and so it's a fascinating little time capsule and maybe that's another reason why long walk is challenging for me is it's like wrapped up in 2020 yeah so yeah there's there's a lot but it is a masterful text and i'm glad that i read it and i'm glad that it's a favorite of yours yeah uh anything that happened during 2020 it's it's uh understandable if it had a complicated impact absolutely understand yeah that's great I, I do want to go listen to those episodes, though. Very cool. Good stuff. I'm going to let you get back to your evening. But before we go, I'm so thrilled to have had you as a guest. I'm a huge fan of your show. And I'm very, very, I think I said this exact thing to Scott. I'm very nourished by what you guys do. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate that. I had a great time talking to you today. This was it's so fun to go deep and and broad and all over the place with these books with somebody who obviously shares the love. And when I say these things, I, n- I know you're nodding along with me because we're God, we're we're on the same page here. Feels so good. Um, and and I'll be listening to to the rest of your episodes as soon as Scott lets me out of the closet. I promise. <laughs> I appreciate you so much. That's so kind because I'm just a little minnow out here with all the big fish. I appreciate any sort of thoughts and camaraderie in the trenches, but I appreciate what you and Scott do. It's so rich. It's full of analysis. And yeah, it feeds me. It feeds my soul on a level that is so helpful. I don't think I would have made it through Wizard and Glass without your guys' help, truly. <laughs> like I felt like I was dying. <laughs> Well, thank you. That's so touching to hear. I, I really do appreciate that. I uh, feels really good to to feel like we're actually helping and, and benefiting people's experience with these stories. That's the goal, right? Like, like why else bother, right? Yep. I didn't know how to feel. Wizard and Glass put me in the spin cycle. I was tormented. I was swooning. I was angry. I was confused. And so Kingslinger's Wizard and Glass, it was like a light in the darkness. Like, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I'm going to follow them. Oh, that's, that's wonderful. I appreciate that so much. So welcome. Thank you once more. Before we head out, can you tell the listeners fun stuff going on with Kingslinger's, anything that you want to plug? Sure and all the good stuff of where they can find you. Yeah, so you can find Kingslingers, first of all, over at doofmedia.com. That's doof means F is for Freeman, D is for daily. That's me and Scott's names. And that's that's doofmedia. 
and, and we have a bunch of podcasts, uh, one where we just talk about books and movies and, and fun stuff that we like called the Doofcast. And then Kingslingers, of course, is our really most popular thing that people actually appreciate. And we do for more than just our own edification. You know, in terms of Kingslings right now, obviously we're doing it currently. Next on the docket is Desperation, followed by Doom a Key, and then followed by 112263. I just mentioned that in case people are maybe not so, maybe not feeling a need to dive in on it, but they might want to dive in on some of those later ones in, in future weeks. And of course, you can look over our backlog. And we're going to be having a live event in, uh, man, every time I want to say dairy. I want to say dairy in, in Bangor uh, in June 2024. And we are currently scoping out and planning and putting things together. But we can I, I can already firmly say that it's going to be a blast. It's going to be an awesome time. And we're, we're just not actually selling tickets or anything like that yet. But we are. It's going to be awesome. So just if, if you're at all interested, if you live in that area, if you if you don't live in that area, but you just think it's fun, that's going to happen in June 2024. And we're going to be kind of keeping people up to date on that over on our feed. So uh, if, if you're interested, you can go check that out. I am freaking out about that because I've been meaning to make it to Mecca, aka Maine, for a really long time now. And what better way, what better time than in summer and supporting a podcast I love. So I'm like 95% going. Awesome. Awesome. I'm so happy. Yeah. It's going to be a blast. Oh my God. I freaked out when I, I was like, this is the best thing I've ever heard. <laughs> I'm so excited. It sounds amazing. It's so I hope everybody goes and it's just this huge fan conglomerate. Me too. Yeah. I've never been to Maine actually. So yeah. Me neither. I'm a little tumbleweed over here in the Southwest and mm -hmm. I've been East coasting before in mm -hmm. that area, but never to Maine. So it would be a first for me as well. King has really set my expectations very high, I got to say. All right. I'll, I'll see you all there then. Yay. <laughs> Thank you so much, Matt. It's been a true joy. Thanks again. Thank you. That's a wrap, everyone. Thank you to all who powered through and listened to both interviews back to back. I so hope you enjoyed them. Bravo to Matt and Scott. It was such an incredible joy to hang out with these classy gents, and I can't thank them enough for being so kind and generous with their time and King sentiments. I don't know if you all could hear it in my fangirling voice during both interviews, but I am a fan of Kingslingers, dear ones. Oh my goodness. This is the show I go to when the analysis paralysis is real thick, when I feel a bit scattered, when I feel a bit lost in what I've read, when I don't know how to feel and what to do, I go to Kingslingers. With Kingslingers, I feel like I'm walking toward a campfire where two men are chatting, and when I get to the fire, I don't really have to do anything. I just have to sit and listen, and it feels like I'm in school again. I just have to be present, absorb, and learn, and I end up walking away from this campfire feeling stronger, feeling more informed, and with a deepened love for the writing of Stephen King. With Kingslingers, I get to sit in class again, 
And for someone who loves school and hasn't been able to be a student for a long time, it's very, very special. Thank you once more to Matt and Scott for all of their hard work behind Kingslingers, all their organization, deep investigation, and strong execution. I am a passionate and grateful fan. Please make sure you're all connected to Doof Media, that you are a subscriber and listener of Kingslingers, and I've linked the Kingslingers Bangor, Maine 2024 survey, so please, please, please fill it out. Guys, it's Maine in summer! the Stephen King tour. Let's go. We're going. You're going. I'm going. We're there. Please fill it out so we can start planning. All right, boys and girls, we're on our way out. But before we go, make sure you're all caught up on fairy tale because that's our next episode. I do apologize for the delay, but it's coming. I promise, promise. We will return to Fantasy King with this 2022 release. Lots to discuss, lots to consider. I'm really looking forward to it, so make sure you're ready. If you are brand brand new to the year of underrated Stephen King, I hope you had a nice time. Lots of other episodes to click around and explore. And if you haven't yet shared the show with a friend, it would be real fun if you did. I would also love if you would be so magnanimous as to provide the show with a review and subscribe. It would definitely help us snag more King readers as we head into the autumnal months. If you haven't yet said hello to me, don't be shy. Please write in at underratedsk at gmail where I'm checking early and often. And I would love to know where you're listening from and your thoughts on these episodes, your thoughts on King. These novels, short stories, and novellas are always open for discussion and analysis. So definitely say hello if you haven't. I look forward to hearing from you. I appreciate and love every single one of you listening out there. Thank you so very much from the bottom of my heart. I hope you had a good time. I hope you have a pleasant rest of your day. Take care wherever you are, and we'll talk again soon. Bye-bye.